So we're back to our studies in the Old Testament, our series on 1 Samuel. On, um, and we titled that series, Searching for a King. That's when Israel moves on from a theocracy to a monarchy, having a physical earthly king. And um, the previous sermon that I preached, we were at the Battle of Michmash, do you remember, with Jonathan, this brave faith that um, brought victory to Israel, and at the end, we learned that it was all the Lord, right? And then we're coming back now to chapter 14, kind of on the back end of that um, victory, and we see that things will not go well. I titled today's sermon as Honey and Blood, because those things will come up here. The foolishness of empty religion or religiosity. It is interesting how religions have all sorts of food restrictions. I, as a kid, I grew up Catholic, and I remember during Easter time that we were getting close here, that we had all these, oh, you can't eat this, you can't eat that, you can only eat a fish, that's the only thing you can eat. And, like, and I remember asking my mom, why is that? I was like, well, I don't know, but we, we don't do that. Um, you know, it's just, it's just a sandwich red meat during Easter time. I'm like, okay. And then, you know, trying to understand. And it, it is not just Catholicism, but every religion, they find a way to impose restrictions that are related to food. Take, for instance, Buddhism. Most Buddhists adhere to a lacto-vegetarian uh, vegetarian diet, which includes dairy and animal products, but does not allow the eating of meat. Or the Hindus, who do not eat eggs or fish or meat or poultry, but they do eat dairy. Jainism is a, Jainism is a religion, one of the largest religions in India. It's a self help religion. They practice nonviolence and have strict rules for protection of all life. So for this reason, they don't eat also eggs, fish, meat, and poultry. They also avoid even most root vegetables because the entire plant is usually killed when harvesting the root. Honey is also prohibited because eating off of the labor of the honeybees, according to them, and the collection of the honey often results in violence to the bees. Or Mormonism has specific religious dietary restrictions that one cannot drink coffee or tea. The idea that for Mormonism is to avoid any uh, mind-altering substances. Rastafarianism. So Rastafarians have a dietary restrictions relating to clean eating. So lightly cooked meals are okay, but fish is permitted as long as they, they are less than 12 inches long. Pork, scavengers, and shellfish are prohibited, although meat in general is not a common food. So, and, and the list goes on and on and on, and what the, all these religions have in common is that they use food restrictions as an expression to either have, to obtain peace with themselves and with the universe, or peace with God. In our study today, we will have some of these interesting restrictions as a, as a means to intersect with this empty religiosity. Things that God never put on people are now being put on. 
out of religiosity. All right, so open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 24. And we're going to study today all the way through verse 52, but we'll read just a few verses here before we pray. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 24. Thus says the word of God. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put people under an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged my, myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food, and all the people of the land entered the forest. And there was honey on the ground. Where the people entered the forest, behold, there was a, there was a flow of honey, but no man put his hand on this to his mouth. For the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under oath. Therefore, he put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb. But his hand on his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. But Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey? How much more if only the people had it freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found? For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. They struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very weary. And the people rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Each one of you bring me his ox and his sheep and is slaughtered here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So all the people that night brought each one his ox with him and is slaughtered there and Saul built an altar to the Lord and it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and take spoil among them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man in them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you in all seriousness before your holy words, because you have left clear instruction for us, Father, and we do not need to subtract to it or to add to it in order to have a relationship with you. Lord, and even as we study now, I pray that you would use my preparation, use me in my weakness to speak to your people, to encourage them, to challenge their thinking, and to bring about transformation. Lord, we so depend on you because we're so prone to wander and to have our own way of trying to please you when you already have given us everything we need. Oh, help us, Father. We need you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 
I want you to notice that since Samuel have spoken to Saul in chapter 13, that the throne has been taken away from him, Saul has become increasingly religious. He is now the last chapter that we read before battle seeking this priest that has already been rejected by the Lord, but he's still seeking a religiosity. He doesn't know. He is confused when he needs to fight a battle. He didn't go fighting, but he's just finding all these different ways where he can uh, please the Lord in his own way, maybe as a way of atoning for his guilt. We're reading verse as we return to our exciting journey in the book of 1 Samuel. The Israelites experienced a great victory in the battle of Michmash led by Jonathan. And you will remember um, how exciting that was. But there are, however, in the just one verse after, we read here in verse 23. So the Lord delivered Israel that day. But we see some clouds, clouds over this great victory. Israel wins, but they can hardly celebrate. Verse 23, we read that the Lord delivered Israel that day. But in verse 24, we read, Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed that day. The author pits the opening line of the supplementary narrative in deliberate and direct contrast to the summarizing statement of the previous section. The Lord delivered them that day, but they were also hard-pressed that day. He goes on to explain why was Israel hard-pressed. Saul placed a curse on any of the troops who ate food before evening. Apparently, they obtained a total victory with Jonathan, and even people started coming out of the bush and fighting too. The writer packs irony in this verb, for here, in verse 24, he uses the word um, in Hebrew, nigesh, which is the same word being hard-pressed used in chapter 13, verse 6. Let's turn your Bibles there. Verse 13, verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 6, what does it say? When they were in the middle of battle with the Philistines, it says that when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed. Then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and pits. They were in despair. Remember the message that I preached on being under pressure? That's that word there. They were hard-pressed. Now here, they were not being hard-pressed by their enemies, but by their own king. I believe the author wanted to bring out this irony here. The Philistines are defeated, but Israel is still hard-pressed because of Saul. Saul shows a strange ability to turn a deliverance into distress. Saul places the people under a restrictive oath. This command conceived of by Saul stands out as an apparent effort to gain the Lord's favor. One might think that Saul's reels is understandable, some might reason. I, and I read some commentaries, some people trying to reason with, reason with his reason for that, trying to find a, a motive. If victory, you know, maybe his logic went like this. If victory can only be accomplished with Yahweh's help, then it's only fitting that Israel's soldiers prepare for battle by consecrating themselves. Well, God had his specific instructions in the law on how one should consecrate themselves for battle and not eating was not include, included there. 
Nowhere in the Mosaic Law, soldiers were required to refrain from eating during battle. Any military leader would see the foolishness of such a restriction. But as we continue to read, the reason behind, the reason behind his foolish oath, we understand what is this all about. Just look at, take a look at the end of verse 24. This is not about consecrating the people to fight in battle. It says, until I have avenged myself on my enemies. This is personal vengeance. Kind of reminds me of, of, of uh, Saul in the New Testament that will later become Saul, that some, some of the Pharisees that were persecuting the church, they made a vow not to eat until they killed believers. All right? So this is all about personal vengeance, fasting, for personal vengeance. His motivation for fighting the Philistines was personal vengeance, not a zeal for the Lord. The same attitude is reminiscent of Samson, of avenging himself twice. You read in, in Judges, you can take notes of these verses to read later, but Judges 15, verse 7 and 16, verses 28, 28 even at the end of his life, Samson is praying, I want to avenge my eyes. I want to avenge what was done to me. Then it also echoes the foolish vows pronounced by Gideon, chapter 8 of Judges in verse 4, or Abimelech also, or Jephthah. All of these judges um, kind of have a lot of similarities with Saul. No doubt an irony that a king still resembles a time when there was no king in Israel, and they did what was right on their own eyes. In Judges chapter 21, 25. Saul was the king, but he's still acting as if there's no king in Israel. The Lord is not the king. Everyone is doing right what is right in their own eye. Saul's self-serving motivation stands in contrast to the perspectives of Jonathan. Take a look back on verse 10. What did he say of chapter 14? You know, this is how we win battles. Jonathan's reasoning and he says, if they say, come up to us, then we'll go up. For the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be a sign to us. And he says that the Lord can defeat by many or by few on verse 6. Right? The word will work for us. The Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. It's not about what we do for him that will give us deliverance. It's about what he can do for us. Manipulation, man-made rules. Saul's self-serving motivation stands in contrast to the perspectives of Jonathan and the narrator, both of whom views this as the Lord's battle, not their own battle. The oath is the latest in a line of foolish vows and oaths in scriptures and casts Saul in a very negative light. I want to take a moment here to, to, to make a parallel with the Pharisees in the, Old, in the New Testament. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Men made rules on how to please the Lord and how to obtain the favor of the Lord are an abomination for God to God. Because he sees the heart. What people can see on the outside is all these rules and the obedience of these rules. But the Lord sees the heart. 
Um, starting on verse 3, Jesus is reprimanding the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says there, Therefore, all that they tell you and they, to do and observe, but they do not do according to their own deeds, they cannot even be uh, consistent with their own rules. For they say they say same things and and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on man's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. And that's what Saul is expressing here. His religiosity, so that people would see that he is trying to follow the Lord. And you know, the next. Uh, passage that we will study in chapter 15, he will do the same. It's just external appearance, binding people's conscience, manipulating others in a way that will put them in a better light. You do this, you do that. How many times I come across in counseling people that know how to interpret the Bible, but they use that to their own advantage? Husbands, Manipulating their wives. Oh, you have to submit to me. Manipulation in, in family members, in, in church members. They will sound godly, that they're understanding things. They quote the scriptures. They are involved in ministry, but not for the Lord, but to be in control of others. It's all about control. And that's what Saul is doing here. Moving on to verses 25 and 26, it says that all the people that entered the, the people of the land entered the forest and they were, there was honey on the ground. When they entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey or was dripping honey from the trees. The battle left the roads and entered the woods of the Philistines, attempted to evade the Israelites. In the forest, the land kind of reminds us of Exodus chapter 3 and 8 when it talks about the land flowing with milk and honey, right? Ground bees were prevalent and honey are an efficient and convenient source of energy. It was just laying down there in the ground. There were so much abundance that they were dripping. Though the Israelite soldiers saw the honey oozing out in verse 26, from disturbed undisturbed nests, they were afraid to eat it. And then the unexpected happens, verse 27. But Jonathan had not heard his father. He put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped in the honeycomb. Jonathan, that didn't hear his father's foolish oath, digs into the honey like Pooh the bear. I just want some. The text says that he stretched out the end of his staff and the Hebrew text, this is the first of a sequential action verb. All the material in this section since verse 24 has been preparing for this action. So I want to, experience, to, to explain here something before we keep moving. I want to point out something that is not as evident in our English translation. Um, verse 24, we, as we started there, now the men of Israel were hard-pressed is what Hebrew scholars call a parenthetical information. So it doesn't progress the narrative. It's not adding to the sequence of events. It's just giving you a little break here. Let me explain. Something's about to happen, so I'm going to give you an explanation to help you understand it. 
doesn't progress the narrative, but provides additional information to explain what is about to happen and make it more exciting. It's like the flashbacks when you were watching a movie and there's that one scene that comes back, oh, this happened in the past, or kind of explain what's going to happen in the future. So actually, verse 24 is just a setting for verse 27 for um, Jonathan getting that honey. It's not necessarily in chronological order, actually. Saul probably made this foolish vow oath, uh, foolish oath in verse 20, verse 20, just before Jonathan's attack. So remember when Jonathan went and climbed the, the, that um, crag and, and fought the Philistines and then the battle just broke out and the Lord um, came out with an earthquake. All those things were happening and Jonathan is not together with Saul when he makes this vow. Jonathan was not there at that time. He did not hear the oath. The battle raging under Jonathan's leadership and Saul goes from being under that pomegranate tree, remember, to play mind games with the Israelites. Saul makes his stupid oath, don't eat anything until night. No, don't eat anything until I heal my pride, until I avenge myself. Unbeknownst to Jonathan, who was fighting hard and at a point of exhaustion, he decides to eat. Physiologically, the glucose from the honey gives a brightness to his eyes. Jonathan probably experienced low blood sugar. It's a condition of what we call hypoglycemia. And it can be caused by a vigorous exercise or the lack of food. Today, it's what diabetics sometimes experience when they take a shot of insulin. Um, sudden, they have that darkening of their eyes. They can't see very well appearing similar to the darkening of vision when one stands up too quickly. That ever happened to you? And it stands up too quickly and it's like, whoa, what's happening? Eating honey will quickly raise the blood sugar level and make the vision of one look bright again. Um, here's an interesting fact, actually, for um, this, all this honey thing, the, the land uh, honey, oozing out honey, like the milk and honey. The, so in 2007, in excavations led by Professor Amahai Mazar in Israel, they found the world's largest known apiary dating back to um, the 12th century, the, from the 12th century all the way to the 9th century BC. So it was discovered in the northern Israel, the ancient city of Tal Herov, located three kilometers from Jordan River in the south of the Sea of Galilee. Approximately 30 hives dating from the 10th to 9th century BC, the period that really was David and, and Sol Solomon time, were uncovered in various states of preservation with an estimated total of 100 to 200 hives, making up the original apiary. So as you can see over there, I put it on the top. So this was found, dating all the way back to from the time of, of Saul there, that they were laying on those trees, um, and dripping. So it is estimated that such half a ton of honey could be cultivated each year on these hives. Some studies were made, and I, I don't recall exactly, but they were saying that even the species of bees that were imported by the Israelites from other regions were more docile bees that wouldn't attack like when we tried to get some honey today. Proverbs 24:13 says, My son, eat your, eat your honey. But it is good, and the honeycomb is sweet to the taste. So Jonathan eats, and people will start 
coming out of the holes. They joined the battle with Jonathan, but his actions did not go unnoticed. And the nearby soldier informed him of the oath that his father forced the army to take. And the accompanying curse and the unfortunate results that would happen. I can only imagine he's watching the whole scene of Jonathan trying to honey. Uh-oh. Oh, boy. Jonathan, you are in big trouble. What does he answer? Verse 29. Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land My father has troubled the land. For the people of Israel, Jonathan's response had a profound significance. He was using a uh, theologically significant vocabulary. Jonathan responded that his father has made trouble for the country in verse 28. See now how my eyes have brightened because I have tasted a little of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil, their enemies which they found, for now a slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. We could have experienced a much better victory. That's all he's trying to say here. Now, why I want to point you to this word trouble. This word is not very commonly used, and the people of Israel was very familiar with an episode tracing all the way back to Joshua chapter 7. So let's go there, Joshua chapter 7. The moment that they heard they were experienced trouble in battle, something is going wrong here. Let's look back. Some of you might be familiar with the story of Achan. Maybe you're not, but maybe you're familiar with Jericho and the battle and the great victory that the Israelites had over um, the city of Jericho where they took and they they were told to burn everything. Such was the weakness and wickedness in that city. And to this day, if you go to Israel, you can find pots of grains that are burned. Because normally when you know, a country conquers others, they spoil. They take all the, 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 the good things, the, the grains. and the, They take the spoil, right? But the Lord told them, do not take that. That's why to this day you can see these pots of grains that you can find they're burned. Because they never were taken. In any case, one person, chapter, chapter 7, says, But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to these things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zebedee, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. So one person acted that in secret. He, sneaked, he went there, he sneaked out, picked up that band, and, and then went to battle again against the city of Ai. Then what happened? Verse, six, verse 5, 36 of their men pursued them from the gate as far as Shabarin and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Does it sound like being hard-pressed to you? We keep reading verse 12. It says that therefore the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. And I will not be with you, the Lord is speaking, anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Well, nobody knew that that would happen. And then the Lord explains in verse 20, uh, 25, you know, it has 
Uh, actually, verse 16 says, So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near the tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. So there is casting of lots to determine who among the people, because this is secret. Nobody knows who did that act. Let's cast lots to find out who did this. We'll see a lot of similarities of this story with Saul casting lots. He's thinking, we got to find a guilt party. we got to find the guilty one. And then, here's the word, chapter 25, Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. You troubled the people of God, God will trouble you. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they have stoned them. It was such uh, a grievous thing, and it, and it sounds shocking to us what happened there. But you got to see that a lot of people died in battle because of that one sin they committed. Verse 26, they raised over him a great heap of stones to stand out to this day, and the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place had been called today the Valley of Achor to this day. All right, doesn't mean anything to you. Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble. So they had a memorial for every time that you disobey the Lord when you're acting on your own initiative, the Valley of Trouble. So when they heard that, my dad, my father has brought trouble. Guess what they're thinking? Valley of Achor, Achan, he did this. This is what happened. Let's go back to our text here. For the people of Israel, Jonathan's response had a profound significance. For those unfamiliar with the story of Achan, so Achan, an individual, had compromised a whole army's military campaign because of his incredulity and disobedience of the Lord. Achan died under the Lord's judgment for troubling Israel. Jonathan's ruse, reuse of this term here casts a nominous shadow on Saul's destiny. And the same way that he troubled Israel, the Lord would trouble him. But Jonathan did not stop his criticism there. In assessing his father's action, Jonathan noted that his father's foolishness had actually prevented Israel to experience an even greater triumph. You see, God desires to bless his people, but they may dilute his blessing if they don't be, when they become too preoccupied with their own honor. That's what, what Saul was doing. He was preoccupied with his own honor. I want to avenge myself. By his hesitant, cautious behavior and his preoccupation with his own honor, Saul turns what could have been a total victory into some, something far less. But his empty religiosity has even greater consequences. As we continue to read in verses 31 through 34, it says that the people of Israel among the Philistines that they struck the, among the Philistines uh, from Michmash to Ajalon. So the, the battle was just raging. You know, they was going through the thicket of the forest. Um, and I, I want to remind you that this is where the Philistines were, and this is where most of the battle was. So they you started going toward this direction. I mean, you can imagine going through hills and, um, and crags and through forests. It was a very tiresome situation. It says that the people were very weary. They were hard-pressed. They were very weary. 
And the people rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground. I mean, you get hungry man, tired from battle. What do you expect? Um, another thing is reminding them of the battle being, it, it, this is not just, you know, you're in your tank and you, you're fighting or just shooting or um, your gun. No, this was hand-to-hand fighting with swords and spears. This is a, so the Israelite battles with the Philistine would have involved hand-to-hand combat, similar to that shown in this relief here. The Medite Habu is actually in Egypt, so you can see some Egyptian soldiers fighting what they call the Sea Peoples. Remember that I said the Sea Peoples or the Philistines? This is a, they had some weird hats here. I know it's not as clear in the image there. Um, so they fought the Philistines, even in, in the time of uh, Ramesses III. We have some registry of that. Immediately, the famished forces pounced on the plunder and the slaughtered literally uh, clean animals that were among the spoil. However, in their taste, they butchered the animals on the ground rather than suspending them so as to permit the blood to drain properly. As a result, they ate meat together with the blood. Now, in the Old Testament, there were dietary laws that does not stand for us believers today. And we had that, we talked about that in our uh, eating disorders class, right? But now the Lord has blessed every kind of food. But back then, they were not allowed to eat meat with their blood on it. And the reasons was tracing all the way back from Genesis and Leviticus chapter 3. And they were just, I, I don't know what's happening here. It seems that Saul is just oblivious. That someone else has to come to him and say, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord. Maybe out of ignorance, Saul's efforts were effective. Beginning that night, the men brought their animals then uh, to start a sacrifice and to, um, then to, to butcher them in the proper way and let the blood drain and then cook it and then eat. Though no judgmental statement, statements accompany the note that this was Saul's first altar, the one, the tone of the note may be subtly condemnatory. This is the first time that they did this. Perhaps the writer is indicating that Saul was responsible for the construction of a high place at which sacrificial worship occurred, a practice that was forbidden for Israel once they entered the promised land. I wanted to close this first point here with Proverbs 28, 15. And it really has to do with the people is oppressed by this foolish oath that empty, empty religion really leads people to destruction. People are experiencing here all this trouble because of Saul. So Proverbs chapter 28 talks about leadership, about rulers. When they come to power, so Proverbs chapter 28, looking at verse 15, says, like a roaring lion and a rushing bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. It is fierce. It is destructive. Verse 28 says, when the wicked rise, men hide themselves. 
but when they perish, the righteous increase. So whenever someone who is a leader who is a great oppressor, um, verse 16, later, a leader who is a great oppressor lacks understanding, but he who hates unjust gain will prolong his day. So really, Saul here is being the great oppressor, a wicked ruler that arrives to power, and now the people suffer the consequences. Ungodly leaders bring people to destruction. Now let's get to our second point. The people is conflicted by a capricious vow. The people are conflicted by a capricious vow. So he had done that um, vow that the people couldn't eat, and now they are eating. Um, they sinned against the Lord. And then he goes on, um, verse 36, Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and take the spoil among them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man with them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. So the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. Saul inquired of the Lord, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. Even though the men were finishing their fleshly feast, Saul was drawing up plans for a pre-drawn raid on the Philistines to take more plunder and not to leave one of them alive. The soldiers who had gotten a taste of the Philistine spoils supported the king's proposal. Sure, I'm going to do whatever you're asking. But Ahijah suggested that Saul's blueprint be proved by the Lord first. Saul agreed and inquired of the Lord. Perhaps Hydra um, used this way of casting lots and deciding, well, maybe the Lord wants us to, to do this. To much of Saul's frustration, God did not answer him this day. And he will not answer him, really, for, for a long time. The absence of a definite answer from the Lord's response to Saul's question suggests three outcomes were possible in that consultation. Yes, no, or neither. Will the Lord be with us? We don't know. Verse 38, Saul said, draw near here, all chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. So, see the parallel with Joshua 7? They are experiencing a conflict, you know, the, should we go to battle? Should we not? There's something wrong happening. Saul is immediately making a connection. Someone might have sinned. Saul concluded that the Lord was silent because he was displeased with someone's actions. But whose action? Without hesitation, Saul began an investigation to uncover that sin. Commentators normally assume that Ahijah used the Urim and Thummim, but you know it's not mentioned here. Sometimes I read it and people was like, no, this is not. Though Ahijah was a priest, and he might have access to that. It just said that they cast lots. Verse 39, For as the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, for though it is Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. That's another harsh vow that he makes. All the people said to Saul, Do whatever seems good to you. I, I want you to also pay attention on the tension between the people. They're quiet. They're just watching this. They're aware that Jonathan had done this. But they're thinking, boy, well, the king is doing this, but Jonathan's the one that brought deliverance. What? Just do whatever you want to do. Therefore, Saul said to the Lord, 
the God of Israel gave a perfect lot and he cast it, you know, to see who it was. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Saul said, cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son, and Jonathan was taken. Saul concluded that the Lord was silent because he was displeased with the actions. To the contrary, it, it wasn't... Um, and it wasn't Jonathan. Perhaps here, elsewhere, non-Levites had these leaders of the army. And Saul and Jonathan dropped objects to the ground to, in such a way as to determine God's will. Proverbs 16.33 talks about the man cast a lot, but the Lord determines the answer. Since God was the overseer of all nature, he was understood to control all the falling lots in such a way to reveal his will. Following Saul's prayer for divine guidance, the process of determining guilt was carried out in two stages. It picked up the family, right? And then after the family between Jonathan and Saul. Verse 33 to 46, then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me, what have you done? So Jonathan told him, I indeed tasted the little honey with the end of this staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I must die. Saul said, may God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, must Jonathan die? Who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God to this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die then Saul went up from the pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went from their own place. The guilty person, thus, have been identified. It's now time to discover the nature of his offense. He just tasted a little honey. The tension in the text is perceptive. The people want to honor their king, but they're confused and don't know what to do. What follows is instructive in this passage. The Lord, who was a great king, and whatever the Lord curse, curses is cursed. But now the king is cursing too. Saul now is Israel's king, and Saul, like the Lord, had the power to curse. But unlike the Lord, Saul did not have the power to enforce his curses. He could not make Jonathan to die. The curse of a king, like every other royal utterance, is ultimately the word of a human being, and thus, to frailties of the human condition. In this case, the power of the royal curse was shattered by this nameless man that came and they intervened in the situation in verse 45, who said never to the king in demand to Jonathan to be slaughtered. The men rescued, they redeemed, a word that is filled with theological implications. They spared Jonathan. Even oaths spoken by earthly kings were a product of human breath and could be quashed. A royal oath could not be overruled by another oath sworn by the life of Yahweh. Surely as the Lord lives, he's not going to die. Jonathan's faith filled actions had inadvertently brought about a defeat of the enemies of God. Both the Philistines as well as his own father. So a commentator reflects on this. This really, it's a stunningly effective critique of all monarchies. This passage is so, showcases a spectrum of frailties and follies of, that besets human kingdoms. Using Saul's, Israel's first monarch, 
monarch as an example the narrative demonstrates that kings could lead Israel into battle but they could also diminish a nation's capacity to achieve victory King, kings could build altars for their subjects to sacrifice to God but they could not guarantee an encounter with the divine they could utter powerful words oaths and, and curses but they lacked the power to bring about their fulfillment after Saul's was rebuffed by his soldiers, he ended the life, he ended the battle, and let the remaining Philistines to get away. This is what we read in verse 46. They just stopped the battle. God desires to bless his people, but they might inhibit his work if they become too preoccupied with religious formalism. The story also warns its audience, whether ancient or modern, of the dangers of preoccupation with religious formalism. For Saul, this takes a form of making a, ha a harsh oath and offering ill-advised sacrifices and seeking unnecessary or oracles. In any given modern culture, one needs to determine what might correspond to these actions. While seeking oracles and offering animal sacrifices are not part of modern Christian religious expression, people today become paralyzed, waiting on the Lord and seeking the Lord's will. When it's obvious what God is doing, it is clear that they need to get involved in his work. Let's take a little reflection here on oaths. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. You know, we, we, we sometimes make promises and things that you don't know if you can fulfill that. Why we make statements like these? Solomon warns us. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 4. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 says, When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For he takes no delight in fools. And, and what we saw there is Saul was just being a fool. You, you can't promise something that you can't keep. You're just, you're just a fool. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay it. And then he goes even further than that. Do not let your speech cause you to sin or do not say in the presence of the messenger of God, that it was a mistake. Oh, I said that, but that was just a mistake. We hear that a lot, don't we? Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words, there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Why do you need to make a vow? Trust him. He will do whatever he will do, independently of what someone vows. And then lastly... Um, let's go back to our text. The people is delivered by a foolish ruler. So the Lord used Saul, even though he was a wicked king, even though he oppressed the people, even though he was legalistic in his rules. We read here at the end of, of chapter 14 that now when Saul had taken the kingdom of Israel, he fought against all the enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon and Edon and the kings of Zobah and the Philistines, and whatever he turned, he inflicted punishment. We see all this bad light going on here, and then all of a sudden we're hearing about his victories. 
He acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. And then we have a little biography of his son. So as I read here, you can follow on the chart there as well. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan and Ishvi and Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn, Mirab, and the name of the younger one, Michael. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the captain of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any mighty man and any valiant man, he attached him to his staff. This pair of verses presents a summary of Saul's entire military career. It resembles more an abbreviated formulaic notices that we see at the end of the Kings when you read that. The presence of a career summary at this point in Saul's narrative is a bit puzzling. It's probably best explained by the fact that the very next episode, Saul's lost his status as the Lord's anointed leader. The Lord's spirit departed from him. It really catches us by surprise because we just heard an extended story depicting Saul in negative notes, and we know the rest of the story will intensify this negativism. Now we hear of such a positive assessment. Who to believe? If you want the truth, we must believe both. It constitutes what we may call the judgment of history. That I, I do not mean, you know, judgment on historical, uh, unhistorical inaccurate that the Bible is being accurate. And that's not what I'm saying. The judgment in history is the way that people have to assess one's men's achievements, his contributions, his relative success or the lack of it. History judgment is that external human calculation of a person's life and work. He was a powerful king. He did what he promised to do. He delivered the people. Everywhere he go, he went, he found victory. I appreciate commentator Ralph Davis that makes a helpful explanation here. The judge history does not have the decisive verdict. We tend to deify history as we do nature. And people say, oh, mother nature, right? Everything that happened in history, oh, look at Napoleon. Look at all these leaders and what they achieved. The vital assessment can come from an applause of man within history, but only from the God who reigns over history. What matters then, it's not success, whether political or military, but covenant. Yahweh is not looking for winners, but for disciples. That is the reason for the negative undertone of chapters 13 and 14. Saul has begun to fail at the point of the covenant in that he did not submit to the covenant of God. But for the Bible, covenant obedience matters far more than vocational achievement. We have these two estimates of Saul, a historical and a covenantal. Both are true. Saul was, looking at the whole picture, a courageous and military successful king. No need to deny that, no need to hide that. But let us, as in 1 Samuel 14, does readily, thankfully acknowledge it, two assessments, both true, but only one matters. One can be historical success and a covenant failure. God will use people in spite of who they are to achieve his um, purposes. Proverbs 21, verse 1, I really appreciate this passage. Because when we think, oh, this is happening in our country, what an awful leader. The Lord is, is, not, the Lord is far from our country. 
God will fulfill his purposes independent of who is in the power, independent of who is in leadership. In fact, that he does not only allows wicked people to be used, he uses them to accomplish his purposes. Proverbs 21, verse 1, what does it say? The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whatever he wishes. Now, I think about the Amazon River and how they, it serpentines around things and you know the water takes its course and it makes its way. That's how the Lord works with them. He leads them. I'm not going to read it, but Acts, you hear Peter preaching and he says, you know, you think that you killed the prince of life? You're just instruments to fulfill God's purposes, to bring about salvation to humanity. So independently of Saul's foolishness and his stupidity, he did not hinder the Lord. But I want to close with a lesson for us about this empty religiosity. Because the New Testament does warns us about coming up with rules and, and different things. And it's a description of the society that we live in today. They want to find a way to please God by restricting themselves, by imposing rules. In that way, trying to please the Lord. 1 Timothy 4 in chapter 1, uh, verse 1 and 5. We're not going to read First Peter, but it's very similar. There's two extremes that false religiosity will take people. One is restrictiveness. They'll come up with a bunch of rules, and then they can't keep that. Guess what? Now you can do anything you want. That is licentiousness. licentiousness. That's what First Peter, Second Peter talks about. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from faith, paying attention to deceitful spirit and doctrines of demons. Pharisees, pharisaical rules, by the means of hypocrisy of liars, sear their own consciences with the branding of iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. God has blessed these things and yet... This is how we please him. It's by keeping these rules. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by the means of the word of God and prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you because we know that we live in days where it is so easy to be deceived by false religiosity, by man-made rules, and we know our hearts, Lord, that we're so prone to wonder that might even use your word to manipulate others, to get what we want or to appear better before others. We do pray, Father, that you keep our hearts from that attitude. And may we trust you, not putting up rules or making oaths or promises that we can't keep, but trusting you only because you are in control, Father. You are sovereign over every facet of our lives. May this encourage us. And even as we search our hearts to, to come before you to celebrate the Lord's Supper, help us, Father, to think, have we been using your word or man-made rules to appear better before you? And if we have, Lord, may we repent of that and come clean. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.